Last week, we saw that Esther is no biblical Cinderella story. Its opening chapters are chock full of sin and syncretism and compromise. And as we continue reading through the book of Esther today, we'll see two plots begin to unfold. We'll see an assassination attempt and then the attempt at cold-blooded genocide. Exciting? Oh yeah. This is an exciting part of the book of Esther. A cute Cinderella story? Not so much. So let's dive in here to plot number one. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We'll be reading at the end of that chapter, verse 19. The book of Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, it's not like I've ever been in a situation quite like this before, but you'd think that if you were plotting to kill the king, you wouldn't be shouting that information from the roof, rooftops, correct? You'd, you'd probably be taking every precaution possible to cover this thing up. And so Big Thon and, and Teresh were doing so. This was a covert operation, no doubt very undercover. And not only does someone happen to hear these top secret plans... But there's someone who just so happens to be in the right place at the right time is none, own, uh, none other excuse me, than our very own Mordecai. We were introduced to Mordecai, the, the cousin of Esther who, who helped raise her. And uh, it's probably just a coincidence that this Jew, uh, who is about to experience quite a bit of opposition hears this plot and then reports it through Esther to the king. Or are there really any such things as coincidences? The two eunuchs who were devising this assassination attempt are, verse 23, hanged on the gallows. Now, it's interesting to note here that this punishment is going to play out again later in the book. As a matter of fact, it's going to be on display in Quite an upfront and personal way. Uh, a very high gallows. So it's worth digging in here to understand exactly what's going on. Note that that word hanged can also mean, in the original language, suspended or attached, even impaled. And that word gallows in the Hebrew can literally mean tree. It just means wood or, or timber. And we know 
that from history, a very common form of execution in ancient Persia, where we are in the book of Esther, was to impale condemned criminals on a stake. So it's likely here that hanged on the gallows literally means impaled on a stake and left as an example for everyone else to see. P.S. I decided that it was better for me not to show you a picture of this from, from antiquity. We've got some visual images uh, carved in stone and in other places from that time period. I'll leave that to your imagination. Note that this assassination attempt was a very big deal. Big enough to get recorded in the annals of the king. In his presence, no less. Look at verse 23 again. And yet... What is completely absent from this account here is any mention of what happens to Mordecai for literally saving the king's life. No mention of reward, no commendation, nothing. And that's a bit interesting, don't you think? No reward, at least no immediate reward, for doing the right thing. I appreciated what one biblical commentator said about this uh, lack of reward for Mordecai. He says it this way. This is Ian Duguid, the former professor at Grove City College. He writes, the Persian kings were extremely diligent and generous in rewarding those who had served well. They kept careful lists of the king's benefactors, those who had done them a favor in order that no good deed from the empire's perspective might go unrewarded. Yet strangely, this particular good deed did go unrewarded at the time. Do good continues. God's hand hovers over every detail here, moving the pieces into the places he has determined. So, so just wait now, friends, until chapter 6. There's a lot of cliffhangers in the book of Esther. We're going to see that the king's uncommon forgetfulness toward Mordecai, the king's uh, uh, reward amnesia, if you will, his passing over the handsome reward that Mordecai should have received for saving his life is all just a part of God's sovereign plan. Now, I think we should pause here because there is some application, I believe, to our lives today as we consider this general principle at large. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been overlooked for doing something good? You got a little chuckle here. But of course you have. If you lived long enough, many of you have been in a situation where you did the right thing, perhaps even at a great cost or effort, and it was seemingly forgotten. It was as if it almost didn't, didn't matter. Friend, let me remind you today on the authority of God's word that in Jesus, your reward is later. Remember that? Your inheritance is later, not, not now. And, and it can be hard. But like Mordecai, this was a very big deal. This wasn't a couple hours of overtime. Mordecai saved the king's life. I mean, this guy's got all kinds of wealth at his disposal. Did you read chapter one? Nothing. What's, what's going on? I'm sure Mordecai was a bit perplexed. 
feeling a, a bit like, I don't know, something was owed to him, that something should have been coming for foiling this plot? Let's remember the words of our Savior in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for your tre- yourselves excuse me, treasures in heaven. Those kind don't spoil. Use the words of Peter. They don't perish or, 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 or fail. Our reward is later. You see, despite our internal sense of fairness, which for some of us, myself included, is quite heightened, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence between us doing the right thing and us getting good things as a reward, at least not on this side of the sun. Wait, friend, wait. Jesus will work it all out in the end. Now, this is not the last time we'll hear about this assassination plot here at the very end of chapter 2. Again, there's, there's cliffhangers galore in the book of Esther, so wait for it. Chapter 6 is coming, and we will see this assassination attempt bubble up one more time. For the, mean, for the meantime, let's continue in our reading. The story switches scenes now as we move into chapter 3. We're introduced to a second plot. We've already got an assassination attempt. Now, if you can believe it, this next one is even more sinister. Let's begin reading in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them, this is the key, he had told them that he was a Jew. Verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. You see what's happening here? Things have escalated rather quickly. Would you agree? I mean, what could possibly be so wrong that you would go from a personal vendetta against one other person to wanting to commit systematic genocide and wipe out an entire race. Men, women, children, wipe them off the map. That's that's what Haman intends, as we'll soon see here. So, the question is glaring. Who is this guy? Who is this man who seeks to carry out such a vile, reprehensible, evil act. Well, his name, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, is Haman the Agagite. Now, fun fun note, 
Uh, When the story of Esther is told, even today in many Jewish circles, every time the name Haman is mentioned, this antagonist of God's people, the Jews, everybody who's hearing the story starts to boo and and stomp their feet and they, they grab whatever's around and they start to bang it. Now, I ask you if you'd like to practice that, but I'm concerned about the welfare of some of your neighbors here. So, so, so Haman, right? Just, just imagine the booing and, and the hissing ensuing. This, this man, as we will soon hear his title, is the enemy of the Jews. Now, don't miss this fact. It's easy to miss if you're an English reader and you're unfamiliar with the ancient Near East and its geography. Don't miss how Haman is described. This is key in verse 1 of chapter 3. Haman is an Agagite. Now some of you are thinking, okay, good, that clears it all up, right? What's an Agagite? What in the world is an Agagite? Well, let's break it down. An Agagite, this is important now. It's going to have everything to do with how these events transpire. An Agagite was simply a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, the long-standing enemies of Israel. And whether you know it or not, these enemies, these... Amalekites, led by originally this King Agag, play a pretty pivotal role, actually, in the story of our faith. In fact, if you, if you want to talk about arch enemies, the Amalekites are it for the Israelites. The Amalekites are the oldest, in fact, the very first enemies to ever come against the nation of Israel. A few weeks ago, we were preaching through the summer uh, about the song that God's people sang after the Red Sea deliverance. God's people are slaves in in Egypt, and God works a mighty deliverance, splits the sea in two. They walk across on dry land. Their enemies are vanquished. They sing a song. That's Exodus 14 and 15. Exodus 16, they're, they're in the middle of the desert. They're desperate. God starts dropping bread out of the sky. Quenching their thirst with water from the rock. That's chapter 16 of Exodus. Guess what happens next? Right out of the chute. They're, they're, they're this little fledgling nation. Slaves on a jailbreak. And the first thing that happens as they approach the promised land. Right out of the gate. An enemy nation seeks to destroy them. Take a wild guess which enemy nation that is. It's the Amalekites. So we're not going to understand here what's going on in the book of Esther and why there's so much hatred and animosity here until we understand the problem that Israel had against their arch nemesis, the the Amalekites. And, And how Haman here, listen now, Haman embodies, he personifies this threat in Esther's day. So let's let's rewind. In order to understand this, we're going to go backwards in God's word and, and zero in on three major biblical events, all of which have to do with, you guessed it, this enemy nation of Amalek, the, the Amalekites. 
perhaps you'll see as we begin to work through these passages that you know more about Amalek than you think. You're, you're probably familiar, many of you, with some of these stories. So, so we're making uh, three stops, if you will, on our train uh, through our passage through biblical redemptive history to see how big of a deal this animosity between the Amalekites and the Israelites truly is. First, we're going to see how, how all this thing got started, how this, this hatred and animosity got started in Exodus 17. Then we're going to see how God pronounces his judgment against the Amalekites in Deuteronomy 26. And then lastly, before we return here to uh, Esther chapter 3, we're going to see how the wheels fall off the bus and how God's people mess everything up in 1 Samuel 15, why this problem is still in existence in Esther chapter 3. Let's, let's piece it together. I think it'll come together as we work through God's word together. So, so Exodus 17 verses 8 to 16. Here's how this problem between God's people Israel and the Amalekites, the people of Agag, got started. Some of you may remember, and I've, I've just put it on the screen here. You can turn if you want to. I'll, I'll read you this passage, and we'll just kind of march through quickly. But, um, but some of you may remember that famous account after God's people are delivered from the Red Sea, right? And they're on the, the backside of uh, the promised lot land, and the Amalekites come. The enemies of God come, and they're fighting against them. Remember that scene when Moses lifts up the staff of God in his hand? And when his hands are up in the air... The staff of God, the symbol of God's power and deliverance is up. God's people are winning. Now, try that for a few hours. You'll find that your hands get pretty tired. So when Moses' hands come down, what happens? The, the enemy begins to prevail. God's making it very clear that their strength, their victory is not going to be achieved in their own power. It's going to be his victory, his power. And so Moses' hands get propped up. Let's read this account just briefly together from Exodus 17. This is all about the Amalekites and how this deep-seated animosity got started. Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand... So Joshua did, as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now listen to what God has to say about this event. Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a memorial book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. What do you write down in a memorial book, Moses? What's, what's God want you to tell Joshua to always remember? Here's what God wants you to remember. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it 
The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You see how this all gets started? This is not, friends, your typical Steelers-Ravens rivalry. As bitter as I know that that is for some of you. I was going to mention something about the Browns, but I thought that would be too soon. The, the wickedness of the Amalekites, friend, is so grievous in the eyes of Almighty God that he decrees judgment over them all. I want you to see this. This is the second stop on the biblical train we're going to make. Just understanding the weight of the issue that's going on here in Esther chapter 3. Here's what God has decreed, secondly, about the Amalekites. The, the Israelites are finally dangling their toes. Forty years later, they, they screwed up going into the promised land the first time, if you remember. They're dangling their toes over the edge of the promised land. God's about to send them in with Joshua. And I want you to look what God's instructions, these are God's instructions to his people as they're about to take the land. You'll notice that God's not very forgetful. Not toward Amalek or anybody else. Deuteronomy 26, beginning in verse 17. God is speaking to Joshua and says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. How he cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, what shall you do? Joshua, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Whew. Them spiking words, right? And God is serious about this sin, about this grievous enemy that's coming against him and against his people. By the way, you mess with God's children, you mess with God. This is how God, who has perfect eyes, who has perfect wisdom, who has perfect justice, sees the Amalekites and their grievous sin. This is what he has decreed for them. Utter destruction. All right. Here's the last passage I want us to see. I think this is going to pull it all together. What has God said about Amalek? Take them out. Take them out. Remember what they've done. They are a threat to my plan. They are a threat to you. Take them out. Here's where the wheels fall off the biblical bus. 1 Samuel 15. The very first king of Israel. What's his name? Saul, technically. Saul. He was commanded to do what God's people were commanded to do toward Amalek. God tells Saul directly in 1 Samuel 15, go up and fight against the Amalekites. And verse 15, chapter 15, verse 3 of 1 Samuel, devote them to destruction. So... Saul goes to fight against the Amalekites, and he wins. God's with him. 
God's people win against the enemy. And then in the midst of their victory, something goes very, very wrong. This is a familiar passage. Listen carefully to how God's plan comes unglued through Saul's disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, verses 8 and 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. What's he supposed to do? Destroy them? Defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag. Ding, 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 ding. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. We'll destroy everything, God, that's really of no value to us. But the best stuff, the best people, I'm sure he got a handsome price from King Agag for keeping him alive. Now we'll, we'll spare those. You can keep reading in 1 Samuel 15. This is so grievous. Saul's disobedience to not destroy the Amalekites is so grievous in the eyes of God that he, he this is the beginning of the end for Saul. He removes his anointing from him as king because of this. Because of Amalek. Now, did you happen to catch the name of the king of the Amalekites? Sure you did. I was real obnoxious about it. What was his name? Agag. Now, wait a minute. Finally, this is starting to sound a whole lot like Esther chapter 3. Flip back now. Esther chapter 3. Who is this guy who is trying to systematically eliminate all of God's people? Well, you know, Esther 3 verse 1. His name is Haman the Agagite. So, Haman the Agagite, this mortal enemy of the people of God, is having a showdown in Esther 3 with whom? With Mordecai. Now, if you've been tracking, there should be fireworks going off in your brain right now. Because, as we saw last week, we also get the lineage of Mordecai. Remember? And you can listen to that message from last week if you want to piece these dots together. Just flip back one chapter from Esther 3 and you get Esther 2 and we get Mordecai's introduction. And scripture is very intentional in the midst of an empire-wide beauty pageant to tell us the lineage of Mordecai. Why? Because if you're digging deep, the Holy Spirit of God helps us to connect these dots. Esther 2.5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Here's his lineage now. Lean in. The son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Let's get that next slide there if we've got it. So who's, 
According, according to the previous chapter, who's Mordecai? Well, Mordecai is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin from the kingly line of Kish. Question. Do you remember another very prominent Benjaminite Israelite from the line of Kish? Sure you do. King Saul. You see this? You see, you see what's happening here? Mordecai, a descendant from King Saul, is standing before Haman, a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. This is like Saul versus Agag, round two. And the command to Mordecai the Jew is bow. Bow before your mortal enemy. You know, the one your forefather was supposed to destroy, and yet because of his disobedience, his line has continued, and he's standing right in front of you. Bow down and pay homage to him. And Mordecai says, I can't do that. I, I won't do that. So, Haman, the enemy of God's people, says, now it's my turn. I'm not just going to destroy you, Mordecai. I am going to eliminate your line forever. Are you seeing, friends, the tragic irony here? We should not be here in Esther chapter 3. If Saul had obeyed God's word, they would have never been in this mess, would they? I mean, God's people are about to get wiped off the map. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about when he told them to eliminate the sin. It's almost like he knew what would happen if they continued. Yet, the sinful thing, listen now, the sinful thing that God's people refused to kill, that they refused to mortify, has now grown. And guess what it's trying to do? It's trying to kill them. All right, let's come up for air. I think if we think biblically about this crazy sequence of events... This generations upon generations of, of animosity between the wicked Amalekites and God's people Israel. And God's people's failure to completely obey. To completely cut out the sin from their midst. Because God knows what he's talking about. And when God gives his people a command, even a hard command, friends, it is for their Think this has to do anything with us? Friendship Community Church, this is what sin does. If you don't kill it, it will kill you. The wages of sin, let me remind you, is always, only, ever death. Sometimes we want to think we can tame it, right? 
Nobody else knows. Everybody else is doing it. It's just a little pet sin. I only pull it out sometimes. I kind of keep it in the back corner over here in a cage. No, this thing is an apex predator. And if you let this sin grow up, friend, it will kill you. Its wages is death. There's one thing and one thing only God's people can do with sin, and that's kill it. The biblical word is mortify. Mortify. Put to death. That's the language of the New Testament. The sin that is in your midst. Just Let me give you two verses. Because this has to do not just with some old story of what God did with Esther back in the day. This has to do with our Christian walk today. And the sin which so easily entangles us. Two verses about mortifying sin. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. The Holy Spirit leads Paul to write, Put to death, therefore, kill it. Put to death what is earthly in you. And he lists some sins. Maybe we ought to take note here. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen now. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why does God want you to kill your sin? Oh, because he's just a big cosmic buzzkill. No. No. God is love and God is just God knows exactly what's best for you, his people. And God knows what he is going to do with sin. And he knows it's got no part of your life, follower of Jesus. Because of this sin, the wrath of God is coming. Like future tense. It's not here yet. It's coming. You believe this? This is the Bible to read. God's wrath is coming. Why is God's wrath coming? Because of sin. So what ought to be, follower of Jesus, your relationship with sin? Murder. Holy violence. That's what the Bible teaches. One more verse. Romans chapter 8. Beautiful. Beautiful chapter in God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, put them to death, you'll live. Now you keep reading and you'll find out you can't do this by yourself. You need the Holy Spirit's help. But I want you to see the point here in Esther chapter 3. God knows and sometimes we struggle in the moment to obey him because what he's asking us to do is hard. It's for his glory always. And it's for our good. All right. I, I hope now this is beginning to make sense. Right. So so why? Because of one personal vendetta would Haman just jump to this place. It almost seems irrational, doesn't it? I'm going to kill them all. What do you see here why Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, the Agagite? 
and why Haman is so filled with rage against the Jews that his plan is to wipe them off the map. Okay, well then let's, let's finish because we're about to see what this plot entails, this cold-blooded genocide that Haman has in mind. Let's pick it up in verse 7 and we'll read to the end uh, in verse 15. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleased the king. You see how he's kissing up here? If it pleased the king, let it be decreed that they are destroyed. And listen, and I will pay, Haman says, 10,000 talents of silver. Into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. Now, just a quick pause here. I would be willing to wager you don't have a framework in your mind for how much money 10,000 talents of silver is. Haman says to the king, I am so dedicated to this cause. I am so committed to wiping the Jews off the map that I am going to give a vast fortune of my own personal resources to see that it gets done. You don't have, you don't have to worry, King, this isn't going to come from the, the royal tax dollars. I'll, I'll take care of this. These people are a threat, and we got to wipe them off their map. Interesting connection. If you have read through the Gospel of Matthew, and you're reading through chapter 18, and you're reading Jesus' words about the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus says there's a certain servant who owed his master an incalculable amount of money. And so much money, he could never even begin to pay it off. Guess how much money it is? 10,000 talents of silver. I'll let you chase that rabbit if you want. This is, this is a big old chunk of cash. Haman is personally committed to this wicked plot. Let's keep reading here. Verse 10. What is the king's response to this, this plan? He says, verse 10, the, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to his governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, 
to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Remember, that was the, the day that the lots fell down on. Remember, the lots. We'll get another cliffhammer. We'll, we'll get to that later. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And listen now, here's where we leave it before next week. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Wow. It is abundantly clear, friends, from this edict that the intent of Haman is to utterly eliminate the race of the Jews, to, to wipe out the Jewish people entirely. Now take a look at this map that we showed you last week. This is the grand empire of the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire from sea to shining sea. 127 provinces Almost 3 million square miles of land that stretches over three continents today. Now, all this is taking place. I've got an arrow here to the, the capital, the, the citadel city, one of the four, the city of Susa. That's where this is going down. That's where King Ahasuerus and where Esther is. Now, I gave you a little circle to help you out. What other land was included in the great swath of the Persian Empire, where this edict to eliminate all the Jews would have been carried out. Yeah. You know your geography. This little strip of land right here. The land beyond the river, as a little dot, if you can see it, that is the city of Jerusalem. You see, the promised land was included in this edict. Please don't miss this really big point here at the end. There's a really important gospel connection that we have to see in Esther 3 before we button this thing up. And here it is. The enemy has always, always sought to eliminate God's people. God told the enemy... In Genesis chapter 3, when the wheels came off the bus of humanity. In the midst of God's pronouncement of judgment, God gave grace. And he said to the serpent, there's going to be a seed from the line of Eve. And he is going to crush your head, serpent. Bruises heel. And ever since that day, the enemy, the arch enemy of all that is good, the, the enemy, the adversary, Satan himself, and all his resources and all his people have seethed with hatred against the people of God. And if you and if you read through the 
hard and happy pages of scripture, you see attempt after attempt after attempt to wipe God's people off the map. Pharaoh tried it first, didn't he? Kill all the boys. Let's eliminate the line from Satan's perspective, the line of the Messiah. We're going we're to make it impossible for this people to continue. Christmas is around the corner, believe it or not. And we're going to read about Herod in Matthew 2. When he heard that the king was born and he sought to kill every baby boy age 2 and under. What's happening, friends? The enemy with all his might, trying to take out God's people, trying to eliminate the possibility of this Messiah coming, this seed to crush the head of the serpent. And here in Esther chapter 3, he's using Haman. Let me just be Captain Obvious here at the end. This is really bad. This is really, really bad for the people of God. And friends, at the end of chapter 3 in Esther, we are left with that for just a while. The resolution, the deliverance doesn't always happen for God's people immediately, does it? Right here at the end of the chapter, the wicked are rejoicing. Haman and the king are drinking and having a grand old time. And meanwhile, the city is thrown into confusion. God's people face the very real threat of utter elimination. Spoiler alert, God's people are not eliminated. The wicked Haman and his murderous schemes do not prevail. But we have to trust God's timeline, don't we? We prayed for Jim Thompson earlier in our service, who served faithfully as an elder for many years. We're so grateful for his service to our church. As he's struggling through this cancer, as he's laying it before the Lord, he said to me offline one day, I'll, I'll never forget this, he said, Zeb, either way, I win. That's right. God's either going to heal me in this body here and now, or he's going to heal me forever in eternity. Either way, Friends, that's the expression of faith that God's people have always embodied. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's still in next week's thunder in Esther chapter 4. The couriers took the message of destruction and ran throughout all the kingdom. The message of death and doom. And because of Jesus, the seed of the woman, the capital S seed, the, the only spotless, sinless one, the one who lived a perfect life and died for these sins, which are just so gross and overwhelming to us in the book of Esther and in my own life, in your life, he died for those sins. 
he has likewise sent us, has he not? As messengers to the highways and byways. He sent us all throughout the land and said, make disciples of all nations. I've got an edict. I'm the king of kings. And I want you to go to all nations and tribes and people. And share the message that I have fully and finally dealt with sin. And God's people do not die. Let's end how we started. With the words of Psalm 37 that Abigail read. Right at the beginning. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. Let's pray. Lord, we realize that the story of Esther... Although the events sound so foreign and far away, the, the, the themes are so strikingly familiar to our lives. Oh, how we have an enemy. Oh, how sin and death, how the adversary seeks to destroy us. And yet, Jesus, you have won the victory. And we pray, God. Even as we sit in the midst of, of our own consequences, of our own sin, as we're reeling from the effects of the fall, God, we pray that we would take joy and courage in the fact that you are the king and you will preserve and protect your people. You will have the victory, Jesus. And so we praise you as we wait for your deliverance. And we pray, Lord, that you would build strength and courage and joy among your people. Thank you.